You are now in good company. We uh, we have opportunity for you with Nike, but you have to be ready for an interview the next morning. I was like, all right, cool, I can be ready. And they're like, yeah, and you have to have like presentation materials and have a deck built and ready to go. I was like, are you? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Good Company. I'm your host, JR Maffey, along here with my very good friend and co-host, Stephen Hakes. Uh, had another great one with Daryl Hawkins, apparel graphic designer for Nike. Um, Steve, what what did you think about it, man? I loved it, man. I mean, we love Daryl. We go way back. We uh, we both we both have known Daryl for about ten years now, back at Oregon, and um, Daryl's the the kind of cat. Not only is he extremely ambitious and hardworking and has done a lot, but he's such a good dude, man. He's the kind of cat that when you're hanging out with him, you know, if you were in high school, your mom would trust him more than you. Yeah, you know I mean, he's that kind of cat. So, so accurate. Such an accurate description of this dude. Um, he's just a sweetheart, ain't he? Sweetheart. Just, just like- absolute sweetheart. We love him. And, and it was so cool to see his conversation take you through his journey and the ups and the downs and um, just a lot of the expectations that have been put on him and, and how he broke free from him and followed his heart and intuition and let faith and spirituality kind of be his guide as he's gone through and just tried to maximize his potential. Yeah, it was real cool. I enjoyed it. So without further ado, Daryl Hawkins. Since the last time we were all in the same room, nobody, uh, we were all still looking for our next jump off. Like, okay, we're out of school, trying to make it in the working world. What's life going to look like? How are these next five years going to set up the rest of our life? Because it's totally like, I don't know. It's, it's one, it was one of the biggest jump offs, I think, that you come within like modern day society is you you make that leap from like all right middle school kid to high school and then you get to the top of high school okay okay like am i gonna go into the world or am i gonna go to college or trade school or whatever and like that's the next big jump and then after that like this is kind of one of the last planned sort of like all right it's now or never if you're gonna get it together or you know right off into the sunset, it's go time. And so that was the stage life that we're all at. I think, yeah, and man. Now- I think so. You know what? I talk about this a lot with uh, with my wife is like, I feel like after college, it's like, uh, it's that last punch in the face, right? It's like yeah. the world hits you all at the same time. And that's partly why we, we started this is because I feel like there's this... Um, there's this stage in everybody's life, like you said, whether you decide to go into college or you decide to do trade school or go into the world, there's that point in your life where you're met with like just harsh reality where you got to figure shit out and it's like sink or swim. And most people swim, right? But it's like to which degree and to how, like how efficiently are you doing it? You know what I mean? Right. Steve doesn't agree. <laughs> Steve's like, these, <laughs> these, mo- these, mo- these motherfuckers out here drowning everywhere. We're trying to save them. <laughs> 
Well, counter, counter. Why, why, uh, Steve, why make the faces that you might not hear that statement? Well, no, maybe it was just more personal experience, man, because I felt like I was drowning for a while, you know? But um, that, which is kind of why I wanted to ask you, because I didn't really have the direction at that period you were talking about, right after college, where it's like, it's time. I thought maybe I kind of knew some stuff, but most of me was like, no way do I know what I actually want to do. So I wanted to know, like, did, did you know, like, were you certain this is the direction I wanted to go? This is what I want to do uh, in that leap? Or were, was there a period of real uncertainty in even what you wanted to do, let alone how it was going to unfold? Well, I'll tell you what, I think after college was probably the least, like, truly certain I've ever been in my entire life of, like, what I wanted to do. Because I, I feel like when I was in high school, I knew for a fact I was going to be D1. I was going to try and play quarterback somewhere. I was going to go to school, and I was either going to do architecture or design or some type of engineering. Like, I was pretty, like, dead set, focused, had a plan. I knew that's what I was going to do. But when I got to the end of college, it was kind of like it was hard to know if it was really the end for some of those storylines. Like, I had the opportunity to go pro, but that's still kind of like a bit of a coin toss up in the air until the final moment. And even still, like, I, we got plenty of friends who are still trying to ride that train who don't know if it's over. So that's a very ambiguous one. And then also, I mean, just because of like essentially being at the crux of two different career paths, I think it's really hard to decide like which one are you going to put all your eggs into? Do you put all your eggs into one direction? You know, do you really just want to start like building your life in what type of direction? I think that was like the biggest sort of like turning point is do I start life after sports? Or do I keep chasing that dream? So you had, but you had the opportunity, right? Because you went uh, Chicago, if I remember yep. correctly, called you out, right? And wanted to see what see what was up. And so what made you, because, I mean, that gives you a pretty good indication. With a little more effort, you probably could have made it somewhere, you know? Right. So what made you decide not to? Well, I mean, there's definitely a lot of contributing factors uh, as fellow athletes you know um firsthand that playing football it's a very violent game and also takes a toll on your body and i think what a lot of people don't see from the exterior is like you know i think anyone can go out there and catch a pass or you know even sometimes make a one-handed grab on a good day or throw no, the not, not on. everyone man <laughs> right 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 so some people can go out there and be able to take a hit every once in a while but the reason why like those guys in the NFL get paid crazy big money and stuff like that is because they're consistent. Like they can go out and do that in the snow, in the rain, day after day after day, week after week and against the top people in the world, they continuously like shine every single time. And for me personally, I'd already had like my second knee surgery, dislocated my shoulder, you know, popped out all the, all the little like nicks and knacks. They're kind of like, ah, yeah, that's probably going to put you out for a couple weeks. And then you'll feel it later on in life. I had plenty of those dings where it got to the point where I was like, all right, do I want to continue on this path of, you know, still living that lifestyle 
body's going to be nicked and banged up? Like, do you love it enough to just be in pain all the time for that lifestyle? Or do you want to start the next venture? Because regardless, the next venture is going to have to come. It's just when are you going to start that next venture? Are you going to start it from wherever football takes you five, three, five, ten years later? Or get going right now? And for me personally, looking at I wanted to be a designer, putting another five to ten years in football wasn't necessarily going to like put me in a better place as a designer. As a designer, you want to do, and I saw myself as I want to be a creative director in the future, and in order to, to like build and direct and help other people do design well, you have to do it. So I felt like a lot easier for me personally to kind of make that decision of, you know, this is where I really want to go. I think I just got to be like solidified in that decision. Hmm, I like it. So, like it. so cool. dude, can you take me through uh, kind of the last day of you being an athlete or a professional athlete where you hung up the cleats and you were like, okay, it's time to go this design route. Like when did, when was that solidified for you? So you, you hung up the cleats oh, and, then, and then when did you, what was the first step to being on the design route? Well, you know what, real quick for, for everybody listening. I mean, what's the, what, what are you currently doing right now? So right now uh, I'm an apparel graphic designer for Nike. I design football jerseys for a living. So essentially I have one of those dream jobs when kids are like, when I grow up, like uh, I make them for NCAA, NFL, and essentially for Nike, we got a team of about five or six people that are just strictly on design and we pump out all the jerseys that you see with a swoosh on them for the most part. Dope. That's sick. Dope. So take, so take me through the beginning process, like the, the, the first steps of, of getting there. Like, okay, so Chicago didn't work out. Then what? Oh yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure plenty of people have seen the HBO show hard knocks where essentially you get to that point in training camp. Well, mine came a little sooner than that in rookie camp where they're like, all right, we've decided uh, who we're going to take and, and bring with us to OTAs and, into camp in the fall and for the rookie camp they bring about like 60 to 80 guys in there right and at that juncture they called two names and everyone else was cut and it's like man two out of how many 60 out of 80 80 out of 80 yeah two out of 80 guys a corner and a running back like man had to do a little bit of soul searching because I felt like I was one of the best receivers there for sure. Like, I don't know. You might have there. been the best. Yeah, I might have been the best. And even still, like that was a big eye-opening thing for me is so much about the business of the NFL is, you know, unless you're a top three or, you know, first three-round draft pick, and even if you are, it's about being in that roster spot. So what, what does that team need? Are you the best team need for the Chicago Bears or for the Rams or whoever, right? Because I may have been the best receiver that was at that camp, but clearly they didn't need another receiver. They needed a running back or they needed a corner or, you know, 
maybe they needed an O lineman. And it doesn't matter if you're the best receiver that's at that that has that's close to that opportunity. If they need uh, you know, second class O lineman more than they need a receiver, then they're gonna have to make a business decision, right? Business is business. Business is business. So I think that's what a lot of people are are saying and talking about when they talk about the NFL is like, oh, the league's a business. And it's, I mean, as personal as it can be at times, it's very impersonal and, hey, we need a certain set of skills. This is our team lays out. We've already made these investments. These are the type of team needs that we need. And to keep, like, playing that game when there's, like, not always a ton of transparency, right? I mean, your agent is supposed to kind of, like, wiggle that room. But at times, you know, you're competing with, essentially the world of athletic people, right? It's uh it's challenging. Yeah. So then so then after that, what was uh what was the first step towards Nike? First step towards Nike. Well I guess I should say you asked me specifically when I hung up my cleats. Mm-hmm. So after that point, uh I was still in school, even when I did rookie camp and I was interning uh at another place that was like a subcontractor for Nike, Nike doing um, uh, retail show displays and stuff like that. So like all the different mannequins and sort of like locker room style build outs. Mm-hmm. I was interning at a spot like that. And funny enough, they were based out of Chicago. And so they were super hyped that I'd gone there. <laughs> but anyway, uh, once I was at that job, and then I graduated from school. That was kind of like the big, okay, I have to actually start making money. I can't survive off of internship, little salary of like, you know, almost below minimum wage. And uh, my agent had given me a call and he said, hey, you have a, a tryout where I guarantee they're going to take you with the Arizona Rattlers. You just have to get down to Arizona and then like, I guarantee they'll take care of your room and board. Like you'll be making about 55, 60 K, which is pretty standard on kind of like the higher end for, um, arena ball players. But he was like, this arena ball is a good deal. This is one of the best arena teams in the country. Like they are in the running, winning it every year. And a lot of these guys bounce back from there to the NFL. And I remember I had my bag packed, like duffel bag and everything. And I was like, babe i'm about to do it i had thrown it in the car and i was going to drive from portland all the way down to arizona to do this tryout and just be like this might be the new life and i remember like all the way down to the moment of getting ready to like kiss my wife goodbye and like get in the car i was just like you know what i don't want to do this like i don't i don't see myself living in arizona like what the the risk versus reward was all right what what does life look like now i'm chasing this thing do i really want to live in arizona if this doesn't work out where i'm just like well playing football get a job on the side of also still getting banged up beat up to play football in arena league which is not really what i ever set out to do like do i love do i love the game this much and is my opportunity elsewhere not as good and i was like i feel like i could you know in design start out and be making the same amount as i would be making on the side playing arena ball 
So what made you consider it? To where you were literally about to get in the car. Because I thought for sure I could still make it to the league. Mm. Like that that's that's I feel like every kid's dream when you're playing football is like you want to be on the biggest stage. Like even just being that close with rookie camp and getting a taste of it was like I just remember seeing myself and being out there with those guys and being like, I could do this every day. Like I want I love that level of competition and be like, I just want to play against the best guys all the time because it brought the best out of me and I could feel that where I was like, I I wanted to get better, I wanted to keep training. Like just that little taste of competitiveness was like, I need more of that. Yeah. I wanted that. I can definitely do that. But then getting cut was like, oh man, you just you had to do some soul search and like is is the opportunity or chasing another opportunity worth it? Especially if that opportunity may or may not come back around. Right. Dude, so, I mean, how important, I mean, obviously it was extremely important, but, like, can you talk about your major in college? Because we were roommates, and I saw the I saw the grind of it. But uh, talk about not putting your eggs all in one basket. You did a major that no other football player was doing at the time for very specific reasons. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, so talk a little bit about that, because obviously it's come to fruition and it, it's paid off, but... Uh, I think it's important that people understand that, like like you said, to have your eggs all in one basket. I mean, it's cliche because we hear it all the time, right? Those, that dream could disappear overnight. Um, but, yeah. But I know you, you've seen it disappear for a lot of people. Absolutely. But anyways, um, so back in school, I was a product design major. And the University of Oregon product design program was pretty brand spanking new, like, I'm re- I remember when we first got there as freshmen, they had just had their first graduating class of seniors through the program. And essentially product design or industrial design um, is kind of like the science of making things, for, for lack of a better term. And design has been thrown about very loosely in a lot of ways, but it's a specific um, way to problem solve or like way of, of thinking how to solve problems whether it's through um, actual like user interaction or um, just specific aesthetics graphically. So it's a nice hybrid of graphic design plus making things. And the reason why it's so incredibly hard to do as an athlete is because the, the time constraints, like they're very synonymous with either being like an architecture student or anything of that nature where essentially you have to be in the studio making and designing things because it's hard to take that stuff on the road. So like, you know, there's a couple of times where I was trying to like take my little wood chip balsa wood pieces and like make little figurines and be doing that stuff in the hotel rooms, like pregame. And then I have to try and like bundle that up and put in my backpack and make sure not all of it broke while taking it back on a plane, like to get back to Eugene. And that stuff just like wasn't working. And then also, you know, you have to make things. So half the time I couldn't be just in my room typing my papers, figuring out my homework that way, but I'd have to be like in the wood shop, buzzsawing stuff and putting things together. And I can't tell you how many years, probably like 
every other year while I was playing, I would be in the wood shop on crutches, like pushing whatever thing through the buzzsaw and like trying to get stuff out just because of the nature of football, like being banged up. But then also, you know, you had to get your schoolwork done. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, so, okay. So then that all happens with the arena league and everything. And then you take that internship job. When, when does Nike get into the crosshairs? Like when do you start seeing that kind of come together for you? Oh, well, I mean, it's kind of a funny story, but, uh, I had, I had left that one internship that was doing retail displays and I had started working full time for a startup and essentially that startup, uh, we did green sh- trade show displays and they were flying me down to Anaheim and we did like world trade expo down there and it was super duper cool cause we were doing all this sustainable stuff and we were building, um, things out of cardboard because essentially the trade show industry and like a lot of that expo space, there's a lot of waste that comes with it just in plastics and um a lot of stuff that's not exactly biodegradable or recyclable so we were really innovating within that space and doing big things but just with the nature of being in a startup it's kind of like when the projects are there everybody gets paid but when they're not then you know you're kind of like all right well we got nothing to work on so best of luck try and figure out how to pay your rent this month because hmm. if we don't got work, you can't get paid. And this whole time, you're married with one kid, right? Quinn's already here. So this is pri- prior to one kid. Prior to one kid, so like, okay. Yes, prior to one kid. So like literally, if you look at right now, we're in May. And this is the exact time when rookie camp's all starting, all this stuff's happening. And then we hit about June. And I start working from June to... I want to say August, like right around season starts. And that's when I finally like start picking up traction with the startup. But then it's like after I missed that one month of like, oh, man, I didn't get paid. We don't know when we're about to get paid again. That's when I was like, okay, maybe I need to find something a little more stable than the startup. As fun as it is, it's just not probably going to cut it. So um, threw my name into a couple of headhunter agencies different recruiters to see if they could pick something up. And then it was at 10 o'clock at night. I get a phone call and they say, hey, we uh, we have opportunity for you with Nike, but you have to be ready for an interview the next morning. I was like, all right, cool, I can be ready. And they're like, yeah, and you have to have like presentation materials and have a deck built and ready to go. I was like, are you kidding me? Tomorrow, presentation deck worthy for nike to be a designer like i mean i've heard of some 24-hour like stress tests but this is pretty next level i'm pretty sure it's only 12 hours actually so so what is like a a deck what is that uh so specifically uh within the design world a deck is kind of like if you've ever seen a powerpoint or pdf presentation where it kind of lays out your design aesthetic your styles, um, just different work that you've worked on and kind of where you see or where you want to take uh, that program to the future. That's so like a portfolio? Yes, a portfolio. Okay. Yep. So that's the, the essence of that. 
So did anyways, you have those things ready? Like, did you have a bunch of things that you'd already, did you have to create a bunch? Like, yeah, how, what was this process? Uh, I had to make it all from scratch pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, buddy. So luckily I had some stuff or at least some ideas that were in the back of my head. However, uh, it put me to the test, right? So 10 o'clock at night, hung up the phone. And then after that, I went to sleep because I was like, there's no way I'm about to stay up all night and then show up to this interview, like not with my head on right, because I knew for a fact, like, I'm not going to be able to like piece together all the visuals for this presentation. It's going to be more important to talk about my thinking and how I speak to my process of like what I do and then build an entire presentation deck that kind of just supports what I have to say, because that's the great thing about an interview it's not necessarily about the visuals that you bring all the time even though that is a lot of design but more so it's about how your brain works and that's what you get to share as you're conversing with someone so i got up early that next morning about six o'clock and then i just start cranking putting pieces together thinking about this that and the other and how you know i can build stuff to kind of like help make nike better and create mood boards and whatnot and then i want to say it's like 15 minutes before my interview and I got Google Maps looking at it like, all right, what's the last final second that I could take before I got to get in this car and go? And I'm like, all right, boom, up. drive off to campus. And luckily, I at least knew a little bit about campus because I've been training there for a little bit. So I knew like kind of where the buildings were at and where my interview was at. Walked right up there and I'm like half sweating, sweats running down the side of my face, do the interview. And they're like, man, you crushed it. Like, we were going to wait till, you know, we said this, but you're one of the last interviews we do, and we think, we want to hire you. Like, Uh, when can you start? And I was like, oh, man, yes, let's go. And Like, we want to hire you as a print and pattern developer. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) What's that? A developer is a very different thing from a designer. A developer is kind of more in like the the making process is in like you kind of liaison between the factories, whether they're in like Honduras or China or whatever, and kind of make sure the product is made well versus designing is more about like conceptualizing the ideas and actually like putting pen to paper of like what the forms look like. Hmm. But at the same time, I was very much like, I need a job. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Okay, man. So you get hired on with Nike, dude. And like that, that was, uh, was that a direct, uh, that was a direct contract with Nike or were you considered like a subcontractor at that point or how did that work? So I was considered a subcontractor at that point. And I also didn't even tell you the craziest part about that story is uh, at the end of the interview, they're like, we want to hire you. And we think you did an awesome job. And I was like, man, that's, great i have my opinions of like what i thought nike was about but the fact that you guys would be like within 24 hours put together a presentation deck that's worthy of us i was like that's absolutely insane but totally like you guys lived up to the expectation They're like what are you talking about you're supposed to have all weekend to work on that so <laughs> i guess like whatever the recruiting agency may have dropped the ball a little bit but i think that worked out in my favor of just being a be like super concise mm, that's cool that's dope 
That's dope, man. So, okay, so now you're in this you're in this print and design thing. Like, how much how much of this was uh, uh, kind of exactly where you wanted to go, or like was this was this like not the direction you were heading, but this is what was placed in front of you? Um, was it was it a uh, was it a change in gears for you? Like did did you did you have oh to? Oh kinda... my gosh! Yes, it was absolutely a change in gears, my dude. So, the type of mind that probably works best as a developer within Nike, I think you have to be super detail oriented, uh, extremely organized, which is all very important things to being successful. But the type of attention to detail and like organization level is probably far next level than what's usually expected out of like your typical creatives. So when I first started, I got close to about 150, 200 emails a day. And then, you know, I was also having a liaison between us and China because I was covering all the different women's training, men's training, like print and pattern tights that were coming through ever. So you got to speak through the language barrier. And then I was just also getting like samples upon samples coming in from overseas where I'd have to catalog all those. And essentially my desk was like a sea of fabric that was just ever building that I would try and like barrel through an archive. So I would eventually like clear everything off my desk only for more packages to come in like the next day. It was mildly overwhelming and not hyper creative in a lot of ways. Like there was definitely several times where my boss was like, Hey, you need to stop spending so much time. Like, cutting the swatches and making them nice neat squares like it's not about the neat squares it's more like just get it in there <laughs> that's crazy but um also through that opportunity i was able to build like several presentation decks and i was able to kind of like help round out some of the other aspects of just like presenting to people and like further doing like graphic design for a lot of their other stuff yeah and i think from that actually parlayed better into my future of becoming a graphic designer because I became known as the guy that could help like build graphics and decks for people as they're presenting to other people. Was that something that you were commissioned by your boss to do or is that something you did on your own time? You just saw a need for it and did it or how did that come about? Um, it was just an opportunity that kind of came through, uh, just being involved with the team. So it wasn't anything like, like super extracurricular. I mean, relatively extracurricular since my day-to-day was definitely more get through my stacks of fabric. But, you know, when the boss says, hey, can you help me out with this? You got to come running, right? Right. Right. Well, especially if it's an opportunity to create, right? Absolutely. Do what you wanted to do. Do what you were, you were craving to do. Yes. I was completely hungry for that. And so, like, I was able to do, like, relatively decent at that job for a couple months. And then I got an extension right around, I want to say, October. They're like, hey, want to hold you on for a bit longer. Like, initially, my contract was only supposed to go three months. Then I got extended from October all the way into, like, 
July of the next year. So I was like, all right, yes, this is great. I got a job all the way through for almost pretty much a year, like another six months, right? So that's pretty dope. And then November hit, and they're like, hey, some things kind of have changed budget-wise, and right now we're having like a really bad quarter, and unfortunately you and a couple of the contract guys are going to get let go. So mm. just before Christmas, it was like crisis mode. We're essentially – I was going to have to go home and luckily we'd already bought tickets and everything to go see the family back in Nebraska. But I was going to have to come and tell them like, you guys, I got no job. I got nothing. And unfortunately, like fortunately at that time, it was just me and Jasmine was like, you know, I'd already been working so hard and it's kind of like, you know, you're in that stage of like life after school and everyone's like, all right, can you, can you figure it out? Are you going to get your big kid job? Uh, are you going to stay all the way out in Portland? Or you know, are you going to come back home to Nebraska, live with the family? And I remember being like, no, we're going to work it out. Like, I feel like I'm called to be in Portland. Like, This is where I'm supposed to be. I don't know what it looks like yet, but some, something's going to happen. Something has to happen. Even though it looks really grim right now, I don't have any clue what's going to go down. Like, something has to happen. So you said you were called to be in Portland? Yeah. Is that just like an internal feeling, or is that, like, what What do you mean by that? Uh, when I say called, I mean, um, just in particular, with like, my faith and belief system, I think sometimes you have an internal belief where it's kind of like, things that are falling into place or maybe things aren't falling into place, but it's just put on your heart that like, this is what you're meant to do. I think everyone kind of intuitively knows to a certain degree that there are things that you should be doing and things that you aren't supposed to be doing. And whether, whether you live in the gray or not, like there is a, a right or wrong moral system that I think everyone internally has and you know some of the things that are truly right for you are truly meant to be done. And I feel like being in Portland was one of those things. That's cool, man. Did you get a lot of pull from your family, especially when they found out you didn't have the job, that they wanted you to move back out? Was there a lot of pressure from them? Oh, yeah. But, I mean, there's never not been any pressure from my family. There's There was pressure for me to go to college. There's pressure for me to go to Nebraska and then me leaving and going to Oregon, there was pressure. There's been pressure for me to ride my bike. Like, I don't know. I feel like I've, I've grown up with such a high level of pressure to succeed and do well, especially as a person of color and a minority. It's kind of like just growing up with that in mind. I think there's a certain precedent of there's a lot of people that have sacrificed and died before you in order for you to just get this opportunity like the best way you can honor them is to make the most of that opportunity and i think just all around as an american in general like that's kind of the precedent of what our country is built off of in a lot of ways is there's so many people that have had to sacrifice just for this idea this opportunity of like capitalism and freedom and um just these opportunities to truly like expand upon what 
humans can do, the best way that you can honor that is to truly go out and do that, right? Yeah, there's mm-hmm. there, there's so much there to unpack, dude, and, and I love it. Let me let me take you back real quick. Um, so you you saying that you had a calling to go to Portland, and um, I know a, a huge part of it has to do with your faith, right? And and this is something that we've talked about before in the past is like active faith versus passive faith, and um, it seems to me that in all cases, in most cases. Um, like you said, you know what you're supposed to be doing and you know what you're not supposed to be doing. Um, Mm -hmm. how much of it was like, I don't really know everything. I don't have everything figured out, but I'm going to just, I'm going to just get after it. And, and is that something that you've seen bear fruit? Because I think a lot of people get stuck in this rhythm of like being crippled by, uh, all the possibilities and not moving in any direction. And mm-hmm. I, and I think your story like is a testimony to like, if you just start getting after shit, it'll come together for you. And it, so is that, is that kind of how you felt when you were going through all this? Oh, absolutely. And I think like prior to this moment, if I didn't already have so many faith steps to get to there, where essentially I was at the point of like, I got no job, but I know Portland's still supposed to work out. Like, it, I could see how, you know, to anybody else, it'd be really hard to be like, oh, I don't know if you're supposed to be there. But the fact that I was in Oregon in the first place was so completely, like, wildly out of the blue. Like, it's, it feels nothing short of destiny, right? Mm. Like, I mean, just... Just starting back from the beginning, I'll give you a brief spark notes. If you ever see my TED talk, I'm going <laughs> go into it a little bit deeper. But I I'm a black kid from Omaha, Nebraska, the middle of the country, corn country, not a lot of expectation. Uh, you know, single parent home until my mom remarried. Uh, everybody in my family either lives in Nebraska or somewhere in the Midwest, and you know, my only out, because we definitely sure can't afford for me to go, like, to college anywhere else that I can't pay for myself, is to get a full ride through sports. And my senior year, like, it's all riding pretty well. Like, I'm going to get a scholarship, and then I break my collarbone. And from that moment, the phone goes 100% silent. I do not have a full ride scholarship anywhere, like... Hope is lost. Yeah. And then I get a phone call the weekend before signing day from none other than Scott Frost, who's like Nebraska football legend. Like, I guarantee anybody in my contact list would be like piss on their pants, excited to talk, <laughs> just, just to talk to Scott Frost. And here he is calling, asking me, saying, hey, I, I just took a job at the University of Oregon. I want you to come out to the West Coast with me on a full-ride scholarship to come play football. Yeah. Jeez. Like, Was that the first call he offered you the full ride? Yes. Wow. But, so, so for me to think like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not supposed to be here. Like that was already – like I had already gone 
through the steps of like, okay, I know I'm supposed to be playing football. I'm pretty good at it. Like I need to keep grinding it out, pushing, pushing, pushing all the way to that point. And then, you know, another, another part of that face step was being like, all right, I know I've pushed it all the way to this point. If, if this is where I'm supposed to be, or if I'm not supposed to make it past here, you know, God open a door or if it's not meant to be, just make it apparent, guard my heart. Like, where is, where am I supposed to be? And then that's when door opened. Mm. So you run through that sucker. And then, I mean, it's been pretty well documented, the type of run and success that we had at Oregon. But I can tell you, no one saw that coming. Right. No one saw Oregon football was going to revolutionize what speed and sport and fast and innovation for for the brief bit of time that we were there there will probably be like a 30 for 30 or like at least some sort of documentation on how we change the game of like what football looks like today and for all of history right yeah it was gonna yeah we all got a little bit of taste of uh of that whole changing of the guards right like there was there was some really special things going on at that time when we were there for sure. And so like this, this idea of faith, I mean, you, you talk about like practicing those faiths or having gone through different faith steps. Like, do you think that's something that you continuously have to work at? Right. Cause, um, if a faith, the way I think about faith is like, it, it almost is like a muscle that you got to continually use it. And in business mm-hmm. and in your career and even in your life, like, there's a certain amount of faith needed and I feel like people who don't have it really get bogged down by the pressures and anxieties of life. So do you think that's something that you have to develop over time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, like with most things, if you aren't grounded, then you get pushed to the side pretty easy. And that is absolutely the same with your faith walk. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's kind of like super ambiguous, like, oh, what is faith? Like, how do you truly understand what faith is? I think a lot of faith is, um, you know, it's not like magic or like some sort of genie, like, oh, you know, you ask and then it'll be there. Yeah. It's, it's more of like a having having confidence in sort of like that intrinsic calling and understand that like it's, it could be painful or it might work, not work out, but it's also still, it's, you come to a point where it's like, whether it works out or doesn't work out is not necessarily the point. It's more so walking the walk was what was always meant to happen. Right, dude. So it's that idea of active faith versus passive faith, because I think people have like this idea of faith being like, you know, oh, whatever will happen will happen. Right. Everything happens for a reason. So I got to I, I, I could just chill out and, and let it play out. And, and I think that's such a such a bad approach to life in general, because like you said, it's more about it's more about walking the walk. Right. Like it's about experiencing the things along the way and then the things that are out of your control. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's I. There's this there's this awesome quote that I love, and it's like, uh, you have to pray as if everything depended on God, but then you have to work as everything depended on you. Yeah. And I think 
when you live in that space, when you live in that balance of like constantly working towards the things you desire, then you give yourself the best opportunity for those things to come to fruition. And even if they don't, there's some other fruit that you reap, you know? Yeah. So I love that, man. I love that. Daryl, I think you kind of led into it a little bit, but uh, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you is what, what do you think drives you? And I think when you were talking about expectations put on you, mm-hmm. I think that's, um, I could see a lot of that being a big driving force, like expectations to, I guess, reap full or take full advantage of the opportunities you've been given. Um, and so I guess if that's what it is, I'd like you to speak on that a little more. But if not, if there's something else, I really want to know what what drives you because you you've always been a very driven, focused, and hungry cat. So, what drives Daryl Hawkins? Oh wow, um, you know I think I like emotionally I know what it feels like, but sometimes I think it's a little hard to put in words. I think what specifically drives me, but um, I think I take a great sense of pride in my faith and just the opportunity that I've had with the circumstances that I've been given. Like, I think, I don't know, so much, so much of life and what people think about is like, ah, things are happening to me and, you know, this is painful and this is painful. And I think for me personally, it's kind of like you're born and you come with these sets of circumstances and, the whole object of life is kind of like, how far can you go? Like wherever you started, how far can you take it from here? Can you set someone else up better than you? Can you help other people learn? Can you like grow humanity more than it's already been given to you? And I think that's the best part of like where we are in time right now, essentially is like the present is kind of the best things have ever been. Can you take it better than here? And that's like the joyous opportunity that we get is to kind of like, can you, can you expand upon this further? And that just really excites me. What a cool mentality, man. I really think so. Especially I love, I love if everyone took that mentality, man, how much different would things be? Um, But I love that so many people, well, I love your mentality of how the present is the best it's ever been, really, because so many people take such a negative approach to what's going on right now. So, um, I mean, maybe, you know, what what do you see that's so great about the present time? I mean, like right now, you look at technology, and I think, you know, regardless of sway of, you know, political, economical, those factors, like just because of the the human experience and existence, I think there's always a push and pull of like moral whatever. But technologically speaking, as far as human beings being able to maximize time and capability, we have never been more capable than we are now. Like as far as the threshold of like, you know, you look at 100 years from now, anything that we were doing right now in this moment would be considered like pure, utter magic, right? Like essentially people were using plows. There was no gasoline. There was no 
real like motors or anything like that. People are still building stuff out of wood and like poking each other with sticks. Like that was like the height of technology, right? And since then we've had like guns and, you know, industrial boom and oil and solar power. And, you know, we've essentially like over the last hundred years, we've like gone so many leaps and bounds towards like just technological improvement. It's kind of insane. Yeah, man, I, I, I that resonates with me so much because, um, you know, there's a lot of things that I listen to about uh, how people kind of take this like nihilistic approach to where we are right now. And it's like um, they forget to count their blessings, man. And and so that's what I think I love about your philosophy so much is is one that it's it's completely it's unselfish. Um, and I think that's a problem with our generation today. Um, speaking for all the younger people out there is like, uh, I think there's, there's been that loss of how can I make things better for the people to come rather than how can I make things better for me? And, Mm -hmm. and I think we're caught up in this, in this like me, me, me stage, right? So that we look around and if things aren't going well for us, then, you know, all hope is lost and everything's a piece of shit. And, right. And so like, that's, that's what I love about your philosophy so much is that like, you know, our founding fathers, even in this country, right. They, they did shit knowing that they weren't going to see the fruit of their labors in their lifetime. Like they, right. they did what they did knowing that they were setting up a better tomorrow. And I think that's so important, man. I think that's something that's been lost and something that needs to be revived in our culture is that like, you know, you got to make things, you got to make things better, even though you not, you may not see the promised land, you know? You know, what's crazy is, uh, I was part of another, um, focus group kind of just talking through things. And, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the New Zealand all blacks, but they have, yeah, they have a set of, I think, 15 principles that are, like, core to the sport and, like, what it means to to wear the all-black uniform. But I think it's something that's very congruent and consistent in most team sports is uh, this idea of, like, being a good ancestor. Mm. So, like, what what are you doing for the people before and after you? Or, like... As, as it comes down the line, like if you cannot reap the fruits of your labor, like success comes down the road because of the hard work of someone possibly before you, right? Whether, whether or not that opportunity comes to you, like the opportunity will come to someone because the foundation's been laid. And I think in particular in football, you kind of learn really early on, like if you want to win a football game, it's not, be, it's not going to be because you score every touchdown by yourself. Or because you make every tackle. Like, it's just not possible. So you have to lean on other people. You have to kind of, like, build everyone up. And I think a lot of what you get built in on is, you know, everyone gets a ring because it's a a team sport. And you can only succeed with the help of your team, right? So you can't just take pride in what you do, but you have to take pride in what everyone can do together. Whether that's because of you being able to capitalize on like that golden moment of scoring the touchdown, or it's because of the sacrifice that you had to make 
in order so that way someone could get it there. That's cool, man. Uh, that that sparks a question for me though that I I'd, I'd like to ask you: How do you separate tradition from intuition? And the the way I'm coming at this is: You have all this pressure from your family to do certain things, but yet you feel a drive to go a certain path. So, when did you feel like you started making decisions for yourself, and how did you come to the conclusion that that's what you needed to do? rather than honor the wishes of your, of your mom or, or family members? Ooh, that's a good one. Because I think there's definitely a point in time, especially when I was a lot younger, where that tradition was absolutely crushing me. Because like I've always been a pretty smart kid. Like I could do school and handle school, but then I also got pretty distracting and like want to go do my own thing like my mom likes to tell the story of when I was in middle school I was doing pretty good and I had good grades and then for like one quarter uh, with my friends we just made like home movies for pretty much the entire quarter every every day after school and I'm pretty sure I was failing some class like accounting or something like that and my mom was absolutely furious and like I remember like talking to her and understand like why she was mad. But of course at the time I couldn't articulate like what I'm doing, I feel like I'm learning so much more. And like I'm growing more than necessarily, you know, what that math is gonna teach me. Like I can't even tell you what I learned in middle school. I'm sure I'd still know it somehow, but <laughs> I remember those memories. And I feel like those memories also like contributed to like how I think about the world today. So I guess to answer your question of like when did tradition turn to to intuition? I think it's when you finally get your hands on the steering wheel. Or like when when they when you get enough opportunity to kind of be like, all right, I'm gonna steer what I'm gonna do. And that's probably what made me like so determinate on like I'm going to get a Florida scholarship. I'm going to get to college because I knew like that's essentially when I was going to get my hands on the steering wheel is when I finally graduated. That's when I could kind of like run and do my own thing. So I knew I had to build myself to that point. So when I finally like got the keys to the car, there was already gas in the tank and I had somewhere to go. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, that's see, that's awesome. Because I think another thing, another thing that really motivated us to start this podcast was to kind of enable people, not enable, but maybe um, encourage. encourage people to start thinking for themselves in that way. And I think, I think there's a common theme amongst athletes who who make it to a D1 kind of school or any kind of athlete that like, you get you you very early on get this understanding of if you want it, then you have to take it. You know, yeah. you, you have to do something in order to achieve what you, what you're setting your eyes on. And I think a lot of people, man, just, they don't understand that kind of mindset. And especially our generation, like they don't get that idea of like pushing away from other people's expectations or pushing away from other people's uh, desires for their life. And then really taking it, under their own control 
Right. So I love that you talk about that, man. And, you know, so one thing, not to jump too far off, but like, um, cause I know it's been a big thing in my life, but like, as far as like, I mean, what, what, at what age did you get married at, man? Uh, we got married at 23. Mm-hmm. And so the ripe old age of 23. Yeah. <laughs> and so for, I mean, for our generation, man, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of unheard of. I got married at 25 and yeah. I'm still among like the youngest people in my like immediate group of friends to get married. Um, but the reason I bring it up is because, you know, there's, uh, there's that verse in the, in the new Testament where, um, it you know it basically says that when you when you get married uh you're you're to leave your mom and dad right and become yeah, and become right. one flesh with with your partner with with your wife and i think there's so much to unpack there and i think it goes along with this concept of like pushing away from and it sounds so harsh especially when you're talking about your mom and your pops you know what i mean it's like right. but it's that like necessity of being your own person and you and your wife becoming your own entity and and um and, and i think there's just so much truth in that because so many people that i know still today um are living under the influence of what they think their family might approve of mm-hmm. and it's crazy how that influences the life you live. You know what right. I mean? And, and it stifles what I think. And I, I have a, I have a personal belief that everybody has a divine purpose, right? Mm-hmm. E- everybody serves in, in their own unique way, but you can't get to it unless you're, you're, uh, you rid yourself of all these external pulling and pushing factors and you actually do your own thing. Right. So, I mean, have you did was there any type of experience that that you had with Jasmine where uh the family was kind of wanting one thing for you guys and and was there a point where you had to be like, "No, like this is this is what we're going to do" and you had to kind of disappoint some people? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I guess to preface everyone who's listening cuz I don't know if everyone knows my story of me and my wife when we got married at 23, we had also already been together almost 10 years. So like to put it in perspective, we had first started dating freshman year of high school and then, you know, off and on. And then we got back together my junior year of high school. And then we did long distance all the way through college. So we've been together for a long time. And I think that kind of you know, maybe, maybe puts a different spin on it, but also I think to your point of, you know, disappointing people and, uh, kind of flipping the script. I don't think there was any expectation by anyone in my family that I was going to get married like prior to 30. Like, I think it was pretty well expected. Like, oh yeah, Daryl's probably going to get married like in his thirties. He's going to do college. And we all know how like pro sports and, being an athlete and just like pulls and pressures of what that life can be. And just, you know, it's a bit of a crapshoot. Like, you know, you get the, the prodigal son kind of like mentality or expectation where, you know, you go away and then people probably fall to their vices through college, et cetera. And then you pray that they come back. And I don't think that was necessarily 
meant to be my story entirely. Mm-hmm. And I also think just the way that things played out, like in order to get to where I wanted to go, I needed to have a certain level of maturity. And when I met my wife, Jasmine, and all the all the things that I knew she was making me better at and inspiring within me, I was like, I need to do life with this girl. Like she's just, she brings the best out of me. And out of everyone that I've met, and even still to this day, I'm still like, she's just the one. Like I, I don't want to be with anyone else. And regardless of if anyone else had came around, like she's the one that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. If there was anyone I could do it all with and not be upset like, oh, I missed out. Or I feel like, I feel like if I didn't try and marry her, then I would regret it for the rest of my life for not trying. Even if it failed, I was like, I would regret it so much if I didn't try. Yeah. And that's why I was like, I got to do it. Yeah. That's and, cool, man. That's real cool, man. And, uh, you know, and again, speaking of like our generation, there's just like this stigma. I think now that getting married so young is like detrimental to your success. And I feel the exact same way you do. I mean, um, Steve and I talk about this like mastermind alliance, right? Where where two brains are better than one. And mm-hmm. if you find somebody who challenges the way that you think and and challenges you on a day-to-day basis to be a better person, uh, that's very, very seldomly recreated when you're by yourself. Right. You know what I mean? So I think that's awesome, man. I mean, so can you, do you attribute like the journey that you've had and like, maybe going through what you you went through and having that support like is she that she has to play a huge part in that right oh absolutely i mean you know through throughout everything that i've talked about in my life she's been there for has gotten to to witness firsthand and be a part of and see my ups and downs and the things that have you know challenged us and i think you know, with anything, I feel like the quickest way to bond people together is probably to put them through some like external struggle. Like if you ever want to, you know, do a team bonding experience, you make them like go suffer in the woods. And I think that's because you you quickly band together to figure out that, like you said, you need that collective hive mind to to get through problems. Like if you want to survive and thrive, then you can't. You can't do it by yourself. It'll never be fulfilling by yourself. And I think uh, to your point, kind of what you guys are talking about in society where, you know, people are looking at it like it's super crazy. Like, why would you get married young? Uh, you know, why do you why work so hard now? Why why not be this, that and the other? I think there's there's fear. And it's like just the FOMO. It's the fear of missing out. And like when, what so many people probably need to like understand and be okay with is you don't have to do everything. Like, like I feel very confident and okay with the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to be like a Hall of Fame 
NFL player, but I'm also probably not going to be like, you know, the next grandmaster at chess because like <laughs> that, I don't necessarily have to care about those things. And I think that's also something that you kind of get confidence and perspective on the, the older you get because, you know, you kind of get this like mentality of you don't know what you don't know. But then also as you build up your faith, you become okay not knowing what you don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can't know it all. And there's not it doesn't it doesn't necessarily bring you peace, nor is it going to aid and assist you in what you want to do by fretting over the things that you don't know or worrying about an experience that you may or may not have, right? Right. Yeah, and I think I think you hit it on the head. I think so many people want to be so sure of things nowadays, right? Like mm-hmm. they need validation in order to move forward. And so many times, more often than not, you don't. You don't have validation that things are going to work out. And I think I think that's a big thing with marriage right now is that so many people are like, well, what if, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what if, what if this is the wrong decision or what if this is not going to be what I think it is or what if it's not going to work out? And it's like, you could apply that to every single thing you do in life. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, right. And it's, I think what people don't understand is that the grass is, is greener where you water it. And so like, if you want it mm-hmm. to work, it's going to work. And if, yeah. you're, if you're willing to work, you know what I mean? If you're willing to put in what is necessary, then you'll make it work. I'm like, ooh, the grass is greener where you water it. That's a good one. <laughs> you like that? You like yeah, it's, it's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I wish it was mine, man. I don't know where I heard it, but um, <laughs> but it, it's so true, man. And I think um, I think that's something that's getting lost uh, with the younger generations and, and stuff. And uh, and not so much that not everybody wants it, but like the people. Because I know there's a bunch of people out there that that value those kinds of relationships, or, and for whatever reason, it you know it hasn't it hasn't been their story yet or whatever. But there's a lot of people who I know who are uh, in committed relationships, doing the thing like they were married, but for whatever reason, that level of commitment is just so scary to them. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I mean. Maybe maybe talk about how how it is like how what what is marriage for what is marriage like for you and, and what does it encompass? Um, married life for me. I mean that's such a. I feel like it's a loaded question, but it's all also a super simple question. Is because you kind of like are you're doing life with someone else. So essentially you have a a partner in life forever that you can trust and have confidence in. But also I think when you say that, people automatically assume that it's like another you. And that's definitely not the point. It's not supposed to be another you. Mm-hmm. It's another it's another perspective on the life that you guys are living together. So you're not supposed to agree on everything, but come together and then try and make good decisions because 
like two minds are better than one, but you're also like, even though you're together, you're two people, right? right. So it's, it's two lives coming together where essentially you're like side by side right next to each other, but you're still two people. And I feel like a lot of people don't understand that in marriage, it's not about trying to fill everything that you don't get from yourself with your spouse because that's asking way too much of them like they're just another person that's doing life with you like you still have to keep building yourself like your spouse is not going to compensate for if you gain weight or if you are not good at your job or if you have a bad relationship with your parents they can they can help you know console you through some of that stuff and cheer you on and pick up the slack in some ways that you wouldn't expect. But like spouses don't just fix those problems that you already have within yourself. Mm. There's still, there are people that come alongside you. Yeah. You still, you still got to put your own shit together. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like unless you're in it, it's so hard to kind of put your arms around this or put wrap your mind around it. But it is, it's like, it's this, um, like you don't stop working on yourself just because you get married. You know what I mean? It's like, right. It's this constant. Now you're two people trying to figure it out and you got somebody with it. You can bounce ideas off of along the way. But mm -hmm. I think so many people get in this rut of like, oh, this is this is who I'm going to be with now. And so I'm going to put it in cruise control. And I think it's so detrimental to the health of the relationship. Um, because like you said, then you start leaning on your spouse to compensate for things that you should be working on. Right. Right. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. I think, uh, I think I, I love the way you put that. Yeah. Well, and I kind of want to springboard with that because you were talking about the importance of making future generations better and, uh, focusing on that, but then also not you know, forgetting to develop yourself, especially when you get married. So what, what importance do you place? Cause I think some people can get confused and, and forget to work on themselves. So mm -hmm. what, what importance do you place on personal development? I think personal development is huge. Cause I, funny enough, I think the, the line between personal development and helping other people is kind of one in the same because people like in order to help other people like oftentimes you have to do it first like you have to be brave enough to walk across the bridge before you can coach someone how to walk across the bridge right so if you don't like personally develop yourself enough and like actually do the things that you want to help other people to do and like pave the way first then it's hard to help other people do it right Right. I, I, I think it's great. And the reason I wanted you to talk on that is because I think it's easy to say, oh, well, this person who's focusing on himself, he's being selfish, right? Mm -hmm. he's, he, he spends so oh, much time yeah. working on himself and that's a selfish thing to do. And I think it's hard until you finally grasp that, that you develop yourself to help other people better, not to, uh, you know, have more pleasure or more free time or money or nicer things. And, and you know, like it's not it's not for those reasons is what it sounds like you develop yourself for. Right. And I think that actually does bring up a lot of good points 
because I feel like I had some limiting beliefs on myself in that same way where, you know, people, people who are developing themselves were selfish or who were always like training and whatever were kind of being selfish about it or even business people like, you know, making all this money and then keep it in your pocket, like that's super selfish. And the truth is in order to be like a great business person like you have to help people solve problems right like uh you look at you know elon musk created tesla and essentially he is helping people solve a problem i want to care for the environment at least with my vehicle a little bit why can't can i get an electric car that still looks like a normal sports car <laughs> yeah right yeah but like that's kind of like the fundamentals of like doing good business is helping people solve problems. And I feel like that was a big limiting belief that I had myself of like, in order to be able to help people, like you have to be strong enough to help yourself and other people. Like people, no one's going to trust someone who can't help themselves. Right. Right. They shouldn't anyways. Yeah. (laughs) So do you think that that limiting belief, was that ever a bad relationship with things like money? Mm -hmm. So did you like, did you think like, oh, I can't, I can't have money or if I do make any money, I need to give it away or like, what was your relationship with money or maybe it's still the same, but was that part of your limiting beliefs? Yeah. Well, you know, growing up, like, I mean, it's kind of hard to explain there's definitely times where we weren't feeling super blessed, right? Where it's like, ah, oh, we don't really have food in the fridge. I'm getting yelled at for eating too much. And, you know, I've never been a really big kid. Like, I was still a wide receiver. So it's kind of like, ah, oh, man, things just must be really tight. Like, even while I was in college, we, we lost our house that we had been staying in for however long. And my parents moved in with the grandparents. So I think, I mean, there's definitely been times where I was like, man, I just didn't feel like I knew how to make money. And I also think, especially in growing up, like there was so much pressure to like go to college, get a job, go to college, get a good job, go to college, get a good job. Like, I think one of my benefits of being who I am was, uh, I'm, I was pretty gullible really early on in life. And because of my gullibility, I got taken advantage of early, which made me very skeptical of a lot of things later in life. So now I feel like I'm more intuitive and being like, all right, I hear what you're saying, but also like, why are you saying that? Mm. And I think I got to a certain point where even with my family, like I was paying attention to like the things that are happening where it's like, clearly money's not going in the right direction if we keep like losing things or if I can't eat enough food or this, that, and the other, like why, why are these things happening? And it's because of, you know, not having proper money. So then it kind of put me on my own like personal development quest of like, all right, so how does money actually work? Like, how do I, how do I save enough? So that way I'm, not in that situation. Like, I don't want my kids to have to be worried about like, oh, we don't have enough food in the fridge or we can't, 
we're going home hungry. We got to go to bed hungry. Like I specifically wanted to change that. And then looking and understanding like how economics works and how money works in general through that process, it was kind of like, all right, well, how does it, how does it truly work? How are, how are the business people, you know, all these, all these rich people who are like walking around with money while all these other people are starving, like, how are they getting rich? And it's not necessarily because like they're stealing it from everyone else, but it's because people are giving them money for helping them fix their problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like that, man. And I think it seems to draw a pretty close correlation with like personal development, right? Because either someone can focus too much on themselves and they can be selfish, right? Or they can not focus on themselves enough and give and give and give, but then kind of run out of, right. of themselves to give. And it seems like the same with money. You can do it in a healthy way where you do build up uh, a surplus and then you're able to bless other people, give them opportunities, things like that. Or sometimes anytime you come into it, either you don't think you're worthy of it or you give it away too soon or mm-hmm. whatever it is. But if you have that healthy balance, then you can you know, perpetuate or help uh, future generations to do the same and believe more. So I think I'm glad, man. I'm glad to hear... You've, you've taken, I, I think you did a good approach to it because you looked at things and said, why do these people have money and others don't? What are they doing that others aren't? Right. Yeah. And I think that just goes back to speaking to what we're trying to do here is like challenge people to, to ask those kinds of questions. Because uh, so many people just resort to uh, victimizing themselves. And and look, I get it, man. Like some people are born into certain circumstances that are out of their control. But I think especially in this country, um, if you're able to ask the right questions and use your mental faculties to try to help you sort through things like you're going to end up better than where you were. And that may Mm. not that may not be at a Fortune 500 company. But better than where you were is still good. You know what I mean? Like like you said, like, you know, for you wanting your kids not to know what it is to get yelled at for eating too much or like going to bed hungry or something like that's a huge that's a huge, you know, uh, improvement for your family. And, and and it's definitely better than where you were. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think I think that's great, man. That's exactly what we want to hear, and exactly what we want to perpetuate onto the world is is being able to challenge those things, challenge those traditions. Because, like you said, and I mean, I came from kind of a similar background, where like I had to stop and question, you know, is money being allocated in the right way? Like, are we doing this mm-hmm. money thing correctly? You know what I mean? Because obviously something's not adding up. And uh, I think until you start asking those questions, man, you just you end up so many people end up in the same cycle of just doing doing things the wrong way. And it's not because it's not anything like that's corrupted or anything like that. It's just honestly what I've seen is just like uh, lack of knowledge or awareness of certain things. And again, just, just falling into the same cycle. You know what I mean? Let's go. Let's go. So I have I have a couple more questions for you, Daryl. Bring I it. I wanted to ask, 
what um, you can you can either say one to three. So what are one to three of the most influential books in your life? Oh my gosh! I, dang, I have so many more than three. Uh, one that I, I like, just not just one, but up to three. Right? We'll yeah. go three. Okay. Uh, if you haven't, man, which one? Okay. Number one, or at least. I don't even know if it's my my number one book, but it's definitely in my top three. Uh, is John Maxwell, um, the Laws of Irrefutable Growth. It's the green book that he has. If you haven't heard of John Maxwell, he's a pastor, leadership specialist, and just like all around person that I think you probably want to model yourself after in a lot of ways. Um, like. This book has been so good. Uh, just a couple tidbits from it. Uh, it's important to like put yourself on a growth plan because you know then you kind of know where you're going. Like I think of so much anxiety and fear and FOMO and all that type of stuff comes from not really knowing what you want to do, and I think it's. It's okay if you're in this moment listening to this right now and you don't know what you want to do, but you should take some time to like sit down and write it down. And if you don't know what you want yet, then just write the things that you're good at. Like write down, ah, well, people like it when I do this and people love my laugh or I've been able to model for a couple couple things or I'm pretty funny and people think I have a great sense of humor. Like I think when you do that type of stuff and take inventory of what you're good at, it's a little easier to kind of find some things that you might be successful doing. And then the more consistent you are doing things that you're successful at, then you can find ways to grow within that. Um, also, gosh, like that book is so incredibly good. So you what just, was it called again? Laws of Invaluable? Uh, what was it? Irrefutable Laws of Growth by John okay. Maxwell. He's got a couple of different series. Uh, he does a lot on leadership, but I'd say the growth one is probably one of my favorites just because he has so many actionable things that you can do, whether it's things as simple as like building self-esteem, like acknowledging, acknowledging the wins of the day and doing things that are um, important towards getting you to the next level, I think are so crucial towards growth that, I mean, when you read it, you're going to be like, oh, this is probably really simple, but putting it in an actionable way is definitely like, it's crucial. And then also like identifying whether or not you're in a growth environment. Like I think there's staggering numbers that say there's a large amount of people that don't like what they do on an everyday basis. And I think it's important to just like, change that or figure out and understand like why why don't you like that put a plan to your life and then go go somewhere and that takes away like so much of the fear of like what am I going to do or am I missing out on that like I don't worry about you know not getting scuba dive certified because I know I want to be a creative director and I think like it just declutters so many things when you know what you're trying to do or at least like 
have an idea of what you're trying to do. So that way you can say no to the things you're like, well, that's not going to help me get there. And then you can focus. Right. I love Um, it. Another book that I absolutely love. Um, just are we just still talking about like personal development or just like all around favorite books? Uh, uh, yeah, just all around things um, that I guess the ones that have uh, impacted you the most or influenced you the most. Influenced me the most. Man, that John Maxwell one was like super good because he one one of the other things just sorry to build off of it that he said was uh. If you ever read the same information twice, like don't don't be upset by hearing like the same words come out of someone else's voice, because so that just means that that information is that much more important that someone else said to remember it. Like I think, you know, some people get upset where like, oh, I read this book and it said the same thing as this book, which said the same thing as that book, and it's like that just means that the information is clearly good. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm like going through the Rolodex of like oh well, this book's kind of like the same and this book's kind of the same, but like is is that a book that you read recently or a long time ago? When John Maxwell book, yeah. Um, pretty recent is when I finished it the second time. I like to I'm I'm on Audible, so I got a a bunch of different books that I read, but nice. I like I like to reread books. I'd say the the other book that opened my eyes, I think, to a lot of things was a uh, rich dad, poor dad. I don't know if you, you guys have ever book, read that book. one. Great book. Cause I think, I mean, just, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier where I was like, all right, I want to understand like money. I, I was very fortunate that I had an uncle who like had started investing in the stock market. So at least it got me asking questions about it. But other than that, like my entire family, I didn't know anybody who's like in stocks or bonds or really doing really well like that or like even had a 401k or, you know, I got some family members. I don't know if they've been paying their taxes since the 90s. So like, <laughs> you know, there wasn't a lot of like strong like monetary influence other than like, oh, yeah, you should probably get a good job so that way you can afford stuff. So I think rich dad, poor dad, super eye-opening to just understand economics and get that idea of like money money isn't real in the sense that like it doesn't have to own you like it only has as much value as you put to it and just because you don't have money now doesn't mean that you can't make it like making money isn't necessarily hard if you just are smart enough to figure out how to make it and keep it right and keep it and keep it yeah it's money you gotta you have to keep making you can't just like make it one time and then be like all right i got enough money i'm set for life because usually that's when people are like i thought i was set for life and then i lost all my money like all the lottery folks are like i won the lottery and now i'm broke it's because they they found a way to spend it all yeah exactly what's your third book man uh, my third book Oh man. Cause I feel like I have like I I love Rich Dad Poor Dad, but I don't think it covers like it was just more of like the 
the gateway drug, if you will, to kind of like understanding money and self-development was like, oh yeah, I clearly, these are, these are things that I want to get better at that I need to get better at if I want to change anything. But, um, then it's probably got to be Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. There he is. Like if you if you haven't read that book, I was I almost felt disappointed in myself that I hadn't I hadn't heard nor read that book until I was twenty seven. And I'm like, there are people who talk about reading this book when they're like twelve, thirteen years old and they're like in their forties now. And I'm like, how has this been around for so long? But I just never had the exposure to it or had anybody in my life who'd been like, Oh yeah, you should like pick up some self-development books like at that age so you can build a strong foundation in that way. It's just like word of mouth. But anyway, I think Think and Grow Rich was a, it's a great book for like, I mean, understanding money in a certain way, but more so understanding how to kind of like maximize your potential and focus yourself. Like I think kind of building into the same thing that the, the growth book by John Maxwell talks about is like getting a true focus and knowing what you want to do helps declutter a lot of things that tend to get in the way. I think that, that does, that book does a good job of understanding like how, what type of actions you need to take, what type of people that you need to put in your life. And just in general, I mean, not specifically what to do, but kind of like the proper theories on how you should structure the way that you're building your life towards getting to where you want to go. Because I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, I don't want to work that hard in like what I want to do. I just want to have fun and like enjoy like this, that, and the other. And that's totally fine. But don't, don't ever think that you're not like building your life towards something or like your actions aren't totally like all building towards the culmination of like a final destination because if you're out partying and drinking and you know maybe doing hardcore drugs and stuff like that then the culmination of what that looks like is you get to your 30s and 40s and people are either getting clean or they're passing away like Mm. i think that's that's the hard thing of what like some people don't see in the future is like you're you're always building to something even if you're just kind of like trying to enjoy the moment like if you're putzing around and not like doing a good job and being at the gas station just like working that job for however long then like what would you expect then other to be like still working at the gas station in five years right because you're just continuously building to that or maybe you know you ball out and you can be the manager <laughs> yeah, of the 7-Eleven. Yeah, manager of the 7-Eleven. But you, but even still, to do that, you'd have to be like showing up to work on time and actually building towards that. True. So you might as well be building towards something, because if you don't think you're building towards anything, then you're wrong. Because if you're not building towards anything, then you're at least building towards more of exactly what you have right now. Very true. 
So do you, how do you make time for this personal development stuff? I know you said audible. Is there a certain Mm -hmm. time you listen to it or do you make sure you get a certain amount in every day? Every time I'm in the car. So uh, I usually spend my transit times for, for, for like, that's when I throw my audible books on or, um, even at work sometimes as a, if I got, you know, some things that I'm just cranking on and I got to do whatever, I like to throw a podcast and audible in the background just to continually build on to myself. And then I keep a notepad right next to me for like any, any tidbits or stuff. I'm like, oh, I really want to dwell on that and come back to later. I write it down. I, I'm very much a, you know, audible, audible, physical kind of learner. So like reading, like I can read, but I don't think I glean it as well as like when people are speaking it to me. Because I think just for the most part, as I was growing up, I got a lot of my best information from lectures, probably like from my family and lectures from like people that I respected a lot. So I've just gotten used to like getting information from like, all right, somebody says it once, maybe twice, and then you have to go do it, right? Like that's kind of like what sports conditions used to do is like, all right, you hear it a couple of times, and then you just got to like do the actions of what you think that sounds like. So I think I've gotten really good at listening to my audiobooks, And then if anything, I like to at least just write it down so that I remember writing the words in a certain way. So that way it's like, oh, that came back. Cause I remember just like really emphasizing writing that down kinetically. That's cool. Uh, it's interesting you say that because my brother, who's also very creative, an artist loves to build things with his hands and stuff says that he learns way better from audible as well. And I kind of would have thought it would have been the opposite. Whereas, you know, a a creative person would like to have the, the book in front of them and it would just kind of, you know, cause their mind to go these places. So I think that's interesting. I wonder if, if there's a correlation between real creative people and, and hearing it rather than reading it. Maybe. I mean, I think if I could say anything about like how my creative mind works, I definitely can't speak for all. Like a lot of creatives, it's not necessarily like seeing the visual of other people's stuff. Because I think, you know, as great as books are, like book typography is pretty bland. But it's more so like the artist hand and regurgitating it back out I think also kind of like puts your your spin to it right Mm -hmm. so you hear it and then your brain actually interprets it which is a a lot of what like art and creative is is the interpretation of other things back in another medium and so like to get it visually then it probably sits a little more static in a creative person's mind especially when it's not like super captivating always to look at times new roman (laughs) (laughs) yeah i like it man okay i have one more question for you what in the last i don't know you could say year or two has been a practice habit or philosophy that you have adopted and it has been very influential on you and you wish that everyone else could either adopt themselves or at least understand the immense importance that it plays and it could potentially give um, or help them in their lives? Um, I got two. 
One is a, actually a recent one that I just picked up. That's super simple, easy. It's I literally was just watching this from Chris Doe, who uh, he's got this channel called The Future. He's big in the design world, but it's called Focus Sheets. And I'm sure everyone has kind of like heard of the like using sticky notes and kind of like doing your to-dos on a task list. But it's literally, he calls it a focus sheet. And it's like, all right, when you wake up, the first thing you have this focus sheet, and this is exactly like just the top three to four things that you need to accomplish today. So that you always know, like, doesn't matter if you get that ping for, you know, shoes are on sale and you need to get some new J's or, you know, you get another Instagram notification, you want to do that, or Twitter starts blowing up, you can stay focused on your focus sheet because the night before you write down whatever, like top three to four things that you want to focus on and make sure you get done that day. So that's a super huge one. Cool. And then uh, I'd say the one that even still sometimes is hard, but I totally can feel my rhythm is off if I don't do it is um taking taking time to be alone and posture yourself so in particular uh you can read about it within the um, napoleon hill book think and grow rich but it, it comes up in a lot of different books it's definitely a part of like a lot of faith and biblical teachings like some people call it meditation uh, and this that the other but it's important to take some time to be alone, focus yourself on your affirmations and the things that you want to accomplish, and then spend time just being grateful. Like I, I would say that's kind of like the the nutshell of it is focusing yourself on your affirmations and the things that you want to accomplish, but then most importantly in, in that time. Is just being grateful and gracious for just anything and everything that comes to your mind. And so, I think I when, you, that. Some when you do some, that, it postures yourself properly. Right. Some people would call that prayer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or um, even a form of meditation. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's, well, that's my point is people get hung up on what you want to call it. They get hung up on the semantics of it, but I think right. I think that's so important, man. Um, I love that. Like, it, I would say it's important to do that if you can twice a day. But most most importantly, like, start your day with that, and that, like, I can't tell you how much more efficient, productive, and just like, like I said, it's kind of like properly posturing yourself. Like if you if you come out of the blocks or you come out of your stance and you're just like stumbling out, it's completely different than when you fire off and are like at the right angle where you can take off and actually go. Like I didn't I didn't realize how much of like time and energy I was wasting by not doing that, even though like that it takes time to do this thing. You're so much more productive for the rest of the day. Like it's an absolute maximizer that I think is unquantified. And then at the end of the day, take some, take some time to reflect on like how that day is gone. Like 
journal note or note taker at least take some time to be like all right did i accomplish my things on that focus sheet how did how did today make me feel and was i was i justified or right in feeling those things and how can i build off of that so i think that also when you when you put your plan together and i've started like becoming more actionable to the things that you want to do when you take like true accounting of that then I think it encourages you to, and also affirms you like you're on the right pace, you're doing the right things, or you know you can check yourself and know when you need to pivot or if you're pushing too hard. Which I think a lot of people are like, that's where a bit of that FOMO comes from. Is like, oh well, I just feel like, you know, I'm gonna start on this thing and then I'm gonna wake up and be like, what happened? But if you're constantly checking yourself, or I can't say constantly checking yourself, but if you're periodically checking yourself to make sure you're doing what you want to do, then how can you fail? It's great, man. Especially like you're saying, just refocusing on your, on your definite purpose as Napoleon Hill always calls it, right? Your main mm-hmm. objective you're going for. So that's I, great, man. I love it, man. I love it. Well, I gotta get, I gotta wrap this thing up cause I gotta get out. But, um, I think that was awesome, man. Thank you, D Hawk, so much, man, for for coming on. Um, I wanna I wanna direct people to your TED talk because I think that was that was awesome. I love I love listening to it. So if you want to tell people uh, your Instagram handle and uh, where they can find that TED talk, man, go ahead real quick and I'll, I'll cut it into it. Oh, absolutely. So my Instagram handle is at D Hawk sixteen underscore. And uh, actually within my Instagram, if you click the link that's in my profile, it goes directly to my YouTube where you can find it. Otherwise, you can Google my name, Daryl Hawkins. And uh, I believe, I'm trying to remember what my TED Talk name they labeled it as, but I'm pretty sure it's the, the three things that athletes use to be successful at everything and anything. Nice. And it's it's very- very simple, and when you hear it, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But it totally builds into everything that we've talked about today where you it's really hard to be successful if you don't do those things. Hell, yeah. Go check it out, man. That TED Talk was awesome, so check it out for sure. So, Daryl, uh, with your creative processes going on, is there any project that you're working on you want to tell some people about? Absolutely. Um, so I've been working on this clothing brand called Touch of Midas Clothing. And it initially started off with um, just understanding and kind of this idea of everyday luxuries. And I think it's really important that like, as we live life, life is kind of all about the things that we touch, you know, touch minds, touch hearts, and we're all trying to make memories. And I think just through that process is where we find the gold in everyday things. And so as a brand and a company, I wanted to kind of make a, a streetwear brand that really accentuated um, just the blissful everyday moments and kind of these adventures that I know I've had like historic through, historically through my youth as well as kind of bring together some of the natural alternative hood elements into a, a streetwear to synergy. Nice. So, so let we, me tell you what, guys, like Daryl's Daryl's he knows style and fashion. You can trust him on this stuff. 
<laughs> Style, stylish cat. So where can you get Touch and Midas at, man? You can go to www.touchandmidasclothing.com. Get yourself outfitted, plugged up. And uh, if you plug in the code free shipping, once you get your, your first over order, that's over $50. It's free shipping coming your way. Nice. Nope. Go get you some Touch and Midas. Daryl, thanks for being good company, man. Absolutely. Take care, gentlemen. Right, we man. love it, Daryl. Appreciate you, man. Later, bro. Peace, guys.